Our scripture reading this morning is uh, the first book in the Bible, Genesis 1. Those of you that want to use the Pew Bible or your Bible app. Genesis 1, verse 26, and we will continue to Genesis 2, verse 9. And I'm reading from the uh, NIV translation. Starting at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Verse 29. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant of food, and it was so. God saw that all that he has made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day... God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he has done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. No shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God, the Lord God transformed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Johan. Um, I was reading an article, I, I can't remember how long ago it was, not very long ago, just probably a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, and it was an article about a, um, a researcher who was interviewing all kinds of church people and uh, talking to them about their church life and uh, what their things were like in their church and this kind of thing. And at one point, 
uh, in these interviews, the researcher would ask the people they were interviewing, if there was one thing that your pastor could do right now that could have a, an immediate and significant impact on your spiritual life, what's that one thing they could do? And m- the majority of people who were asked this question responded with saying, I wish that they would talk about work. I come to church and I hear sermons about the Bible and my pastor is very good at explaining the Bible to me. He's taught me how to read the Bible. He's taught me how to understand the Bible. He's taught me how to live as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a child of parents, as a friend, as a a husband or a wife or as as a parent, these kinds of things. But I spend most of my time at work and frankly, I don't really hear my pastor talk a lot about how I take my life or my, sorry, how I take my faith into my work life. And they said that that would be one of the most helpful things that their pastor could do. It would help them think through how they're supposed to be a follower of Jesus Christ in their work life. And I was reading this, and I was suddenly struck by the fact that I have never preached a series on work. I have been pastoring for over 20 years, and I've been a preaching pastor for 20 years, and I have never once, I mean, I've talked about work and sermons, I've made applications to work, that kind of thing, but I've never actually preached a series on work, and I was like ashamed of myself. I was like, this is a dereliction of duty. If this is the thing that your family, your church family needs, your people need so desperately, and you've never talked about it, shame on you, Vandenbrink. Uh, There's a place in Ephesians chapter 4 where the Apostle Paul, he says that God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for works of ministry. And, of course, it's talking about ministry in the church, like, you know, teaching Sunday school class or serving at a, at a ministry uh, of the church or something. But it's, it's talking about a lot more than that. Those of you who are working... You spend a third of your time in the workplace, generally, at least during the week, Monday to Friday, anyway. Some of you maybe even spend more than that at work. And I think it's time that I right a terrible wrong. And I try, at least, to help give you some thoughts from the Bible about what work is, how work can be fulfilling, how do we decide whether we're in the right kind of work, what's the point of work, that kind of stuff. Because like I said, it's time to uh, right a terrible wrong. So, so we're going to spend a few weeks looking at work, just four weeks looking at work from a bunch of different perspectives, different angles. And uh, we're going to start this morning with the gift of work. That work is actually a gift. And that might sound weird to some of you, uh, given the fact that we live in a culture and a time where where work is most of the time considered uh, a curse rather than a gift. Uh, A recent LinkedIn poll, now these these polls are all taken from the United States. I couldn't find anything from Canada, I'm sorry, but we're not that much different about lots of things, including probably our perspective on work, so I think that these stats would be similar in our country as well. Anyway, this LinkedIn poll, okay? 61% of people polled were currently thinking about leaving their job. 
72% of them were Gen Z or Gen Z people, okay? 66% were millennials from that generation. 55% were Gen Xers. That's the generation that I'm from. And then 33% were uh, baby boomers. Baby boomers are like, eh, I'm almost at the end. Why would I bother changing now? I guess that's probably why their number there is so low. I don't know for sure. But the number one reason, okay, that all these people, 61% of American workers were thinking of leaving their job was because of job dissatisfaction. They didn't like what they were doing, right? They didn't feel fulfilled in their work. Some of them said that they weren't being paid enough for their work. The point is, is that people are unhappy at work. A Gallup poll from a year and a half ago in the States said that 70% of those polled were disengaged from their work, and 50% of those polled didn't really care about their work at all, which means that only 30% of American workers care about their job. No wonder people are always working for the weekend, right? You guys know that song from Loverboy? Everybody's working for the weekend. When in the 90s, when I was growing up, the, the thing was TGIF, Thank God it's Friday. People are, are trying to retire and have freedom 55. People are trying to get done with work as early as possible in their lives so that they can do what they want rather than what they have to. And this is actually rooted in a philosophy that has, has been around for a long time in our world um, that work is essentially nothing more than a necessary evil. There's a very old creation myth that was around before the story of Genesis in the Mediterranean world. And it was the story of creation that Marduk, a god named Marduk, was at war with other gods and he defeated the god Tiamat. And with Tiamat's severed, dissected body, he created a world. And the other gods... They said, ha ha, sucker, Marduk, now you've got this world, you've got to take care of it. And Marduk said, no problem, I will create slaves to take care of the world for me. And that's what he made humans for, to take care of the world for him. Because work is not something that a god would ever stoop to do. Plato and Aristotle said that work was demeaning, especially manual labor. And if you know anything about the Greek mythology. Uh, There's a story of Pandora who is given a a secret box by uh, Zeus and it was very valuable and she was told don't open that box which of course is just like saying go ahead and open the box because whenever you tell someone not to do something then they just want to do it right. So Pandora she opens this box and out of it comes all the ills of the world. Plague, disease, war and work. So there's a long history in our culture of work being seen as a necessary evil. And you know what? In the church, too, uh, you can hear Christians talk about work that way, too. They say, when I'm at church and I'm serving at church, then I'm doing God's work and I'm in service to his kingdom. But when I'm out in the real world, I'm just there, frankly, to make a living. I just got to put food on the table for me and my family. 
And so that's why I'm at work. If I could avoid it, I would avoid it. Now, sometimes people get a little more sanctified about their work and they say like, well, I'm out there busting my back at work so that I can make a lot of money so I can give it to the kingdom, give it to the church, give it to ministries that I believe in. It's November, so you're probably getting more and more of your uh, mail coming from various ministries asking you to give to them at the, their year end, right? Help them get over their their uh, budget deficit. Uh, Grace Valley Church will probably hit you up for some extra money at some point in the next couple of months, right? And you think to yourself, well, you know, at least that's what work is for, is to help me uh, expand the kingdom. And the sooner I can get out of it, the sooner I can retire and then really give myself to God in service because I can volunteer more, that's what I want out of life. But strangely enough, the Bible does not think about work that way at all. It does not describe work this way at all. In fact, the Bible says that work in and of itself is a good thing. It is a gift, and if we understand it properly, perhaps we can learn to enjoy work more than maybe some of us currently do. Um, And by the way, work, yes, is often paid, but sometimes... Work is not paid, and it's not always paid. Uh, There's lots of work being done out there where people are not getting paid for it. Uh, uh, Raising children in your home, keeping house, managing that, these things are things that you don't get paid for, but it constitutes work as well. So what I want to do is I want to just look at Genesis 1 and 2, the creation story, and and see how gift is described as a work, and then share some, or sorry, (laughs) Work is descri- the work is described as a gift, and then share some implications of what that means for us. So let's have a look together. Now, we didn't read Genesis 1 verse 1, but in Genesis 1 verse 1, it says that, that God created the heavens and the earth, and he spoke, okay, and, and because of his speaking, life was generated. And he creates land and sea, he creates sun and moon, day and night, all these things he's creating throughout Genesis chapter 1, and he says it is good, and then in evening and morning, there's the next day, and then there's the next uh, part of uh, the created order that God creates, etc. But then he gets to verse 26, and a change happens. There's a shift in the motif, so to speak. Uh, it says, God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kind, etc., etc., right? And so he made all these things. And then in verse 26, it says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. There's a new creature on the scene. And this creature is different from all the other creatures because this one is made actually in the image of God. And, and, and as the image of God, they're given this new task, this, this job to rule over everything, to, to fill this earth and to subdue this earth. Now hold on to that thought, okay? But notice the first thing here is that these creatures, human beings, were created in God's image, Okay? So they're, they're meant to reflect God's character. Now, when we think of God's character, when we think of what God is like, we think he is good, he is just, he is loving, he is compassionate, and therefore we ought to be good and just and loving and compassionate if we're going to properly reflect God's character. 
But God is also described in Genesis 1 and 2 as a worker. We read Genesis 2 and we see there, he works. In verse 7, he forms man. In verse 6 and in verse 8, he plants a garden and he waters this garden. And in verse 21 and 22, we didn't read that far, but we read that he creates Eve, right? He puts Adam to sleep and takes Eve from his rib and forms her and presents her to him as well. And then look at verse 2 and 3 of Genesis 2 where it says this, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, why do I keep emphasizing work? Here's why. Only four times in the Old Testament does it describe God as working. Three of them are right here in the creation story. Yet 151 times in the Old Testament are human beings described as working. Okay? And so the point that the author is making here is he's tying God to work and to our imageness. God is a worker. This is what Jesus actually says in John chapter 5 verse 17. He says this about his heavenly father and about himself. My father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. Now you're like wait a minute what do you mean God is always at his work. I thought just, in, I thought in the passage you just read, it was all about God resting from his work. Ah, he's resting from the work of creating the universe. So he's finished his masterpiece. It's like you do a landscaping project around your house, right? And you're tearing stuff up and it looks like a disaster. It's a big old mud pit, but then you put the rocks in there and you, you get the special plants there and you put down the mulch or whatever and then it finally looks good and it's all in order and it's all done. What do you do? You plunk down, I hope this is what you do, you plunk down your patio chair on your new interlocking patio, you grab yourself a lemonade, you put your feet up, and you just enjoy the work of your hands. I hope you do that, at least for a little while. That's what, G, that's what God is doing when he's resting from his work here. But the point I'm trying to make to you is that God himself is a worker, and so are we. To work is to bear God's image. All right? God makes Adam, and he makes Eve eventually as well, and he places, we read, he places Adam in the garden to work it and to take care of it. So work is not a curse. It is not the result of sin. It was there before the fall. It's existed before the fall. Eden was not an all-inclusive resort where Adam and Eve just like held up their hand and clinked their glass and boom, it got filled up and they went to the buffet at, uh, that was always available 24-7. No, no, no. They were meant to work, to, to develop it. And this, friends, this is unique. This is utterly unique in the ancient narratives, ancient stories about the creation of the world. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit on a kick on this and I'm going to just take a second to emphasize it. We don't realize how radically different the Bible's story about virtually everything actually is. Scholars are dumbfounded at the fact that out of this ancient Near Eastern world where there were 
Marduk and Tiamat fighting each other to create and then having slaves and uh, Aristotle and Plato saying that work is silly and stupid and you should try to avoid it and just get slaves to do it. If you're an educated person, you don't have to work anymore. You live a life of leisure. All this kind of stuff. This is the way everybody thought. Work was for slaves. And here comes this Hebrew origin story about the world and it has the audacity to say that God works. The creator works. We don't realize how radical that is and how almost impossible it is to figure out how in the world that story got written in the ancient Near East when none of the other stories looked like that at all. It's just another, I'm saying this because I'm trying to show you this is another reason to believe that this is the true story of the world because it, it, it doesn't make sense that it pops up in the world when it does. And work as being part of our very existence is, uh, and, and, and a good part of our very existence is another thing that doesn't make sense. Listen to what Tim Keller says. He says, work is as much a basic human need as food, beauty, rest, friendship, prayer, and sexuality. It is not simply medicine, but food for our soul. I can barely see this. Hold on. Without meaningful work, we sense significant inner loss and emptiness. People who are cut off from work because of physical or other reasons quickly discover how much they need work to thrive emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Think about this. Work is one of the few things that you can do a lot of and it doesn't actually harm you. Now, yes, you can be a workaholic and you can overwork. But look, the pattern is six days you shall labor and do all your work. And on the seventh day, you shall not work. One day you rest, six days you work. Rest is good. Leisure is good. Relaxing and kicking back is good. Vacation is awesome. I love it too. But you can get too much of it. You can't do it forever. You go to a nursing home and you talk to, to infirm people, older people, and you ask them, what's the hardest thing about being here? And they say, I got nothing to do. And you're like, what do you mean? You guys have bingo, and you have Sudoku club, and you have, and that's not what they're talking about. When they say I have nothing to do, what they mean is, is they want to be useful. They want to be productive. They want to participate in culture building and society. That's what they mean. Dorothy Sayers, she says, what is the Christian understanding of work? It is that work is not primarily, listen to this, I love this, this is so good. Work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. It is, or should be, the full expression of the worker's faculties, the medium in which he or she offers himself or herself to God. Now, I already said this, this is unique. We are called not to escape work, but embrace work, because it's a gift. Now, let me just give you, quickly, five implications of that. And you're like, five, quickly? Yeah, right. I'm going to try, though. I'm going to be very, very succinct, because all of these things are going to come back in the coming weeks, so I don't need to say it all now. I kept telling myself this morning while I was preparing again, you know, you don't need to say it all this morning. Listen. First of all, first implication. Our work continues God's work. And this is so cool. 
God first creates, and what does he do? He creates order out of chaos, right? The earth is formless and void. It is tohu vabohu. Every, everybody who's learned Hebrew always loves that phrase. It was formless and it was void. And God comes along and he creates order out of it. And then when he creates, creates man, he says, I want you guys to do the same thing. Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Now, Jesus, when he says be fruitful and multiply, he's not just saying make babies. He wants babies. Don't misunderstand. But that's not all he's saying because God's, he could have just made seven billion people. Could have just snapped his fingers and boom, they're all there. What he's saying is he wants them to create civilization. To fill the earth and subdue it is to, is to make more order. Just like he created order out of chaos in Genesis 1. He puts Adam and Eve into, or he puts Adam into the garden and he says, I'm putting you there to work it and take care of it. To build civilization out of the material and physical properties of the world that I've set you in. It's to realize the potential here. So, for example, I met a farmer this morning. It's great. Farmers. What does a farmer do? A farmer takes seed, combines it with soil, and all the best of their knowledge how to facilitate growth. They can't make it grow. That's why being a farmer is just a fascinating industry. Like, it doesn't matter how hard you try. You can't actually make the growth happen. But you can create the conditions that optimize the growth uh, of, of plant life. And so a farmer does that with soil and seed so that we can have food. A musician takes the physics around sound and organizes sound in such a way that it is beautiful and melodious and it speaks to our inner selves, right? A seamstress takes the, the raw materials of, of cotton and other things that you make clothing out of. You can see I'm way out of my depth here. But uh, <laughs> they take the fabric and they organize it in such a way to create something beautiful. An electrician takes everything we've learned from physics and is able to harness power so that it's useful to us in our homes. This is subduing the earth. Subdue is not wrestle it to the ground and stick your neck on it and cause it to die. Subduing it is to take this chaos, this disorder, and to channel it so that it becomes something useful to us. That's the first implication. And that's continuing the work of God because he did it first in Genesis 1. Number two, this means that all work has dignity. God's charge, when he says fill the earth and subdue it, it's a divine commissioning. He's putting Adam and Eve in charge of his world like vice regents, okay? Like, like kings and queens or stewards. Not owners, but stewards of it. But here's the thing. He does this for all people. This is our, our first parents. And he says, this is what makes you part of my image. Everyone who is born after you is also an image bearer of mine and also is called to the, very, the, the exact same thing. And it's men and women because we're created male and female. And since God works and we're created in his image and we're all called to work, every kind of work is dignified. God himself in the creation story, is doing manual labor. Again, that's crazy. Back then, to, you're, you're an ancient Hebrew, you're reading this, you're like, what? Or hearing this, because most of them couldn't read. 
you're hearing this, you're like, what, God, he gets his hands dirty? And today we do a little bit like that in our culture as well. We emphasize the knowledge economy. We emphasize white-collar uh, professions. Uh, I, have, uh, I have three sons. All of them are in blue-collar. And they always, whenever we talk about work, they always go, blue-collar, baby! They're very, very proud of being blue-collar. And I'm glad they're proud of being blue-collar because in the, in, the, in the Genesis story, God is a gardener. And in the New Testament, when God comes in the flesh as Jesus, he's a carpenter. And we know he did carpentry because Mark says that when people heard about Jesus, uh, Jesus starting this ministry and doing these amazing things, speaking with power and authority and uh, doing miracles and stuff, um, people were like, what? Isn't that the carpenter? So he used to make stuff out of wood. Simple, physical labor is just as God-honoring as preaching a sermon on a Sunday morning. Listen, if you don't clean your house or hire someone else to clean your house, you will eventually die. You will. Right? It'll start to breed all kinds of deadly forces. And so there is great honor in all kinds of work. Third, all work, this therefore, is meant to serve God and others. I forgot to mention this before. At the very beginning of the sermon, I was supposed to define work for you. <laughs> and I, I forgot to do that. Listen to what work is or, or can be. Okay? Um, Dorothy Sayers says that work is the expending of energy for the good of others. The expending of our energy for the good of others. Now, I'm going to give you other definitions of work over the coming weeks, but that's a very, very good one. All work is meant to serve God and others, not just the work of pastors and missionaries and full-time uh, ministry people. Adam wasn't a priest. He was a farmer. People say, I work hard so that I can give money to the church, and I'm very appreciative of that, but any work done to the glory of God is pleasing to God. So you're an accountant, and you say, well, how do I, how do I please God as an accountant? I mean, what, what does that have to do with it? How do I glorify him? Should I go work for a nonprofit? Well, I guess that's one way, sure. But every company needs good accountants. Every company needs trustworthy accountants who are really good with numbers and who are really committed to honesty and truthfulness and accuracy. So be the best accountant that you can be in the place that God has called you to be an accountant. Um, a landscaper says, well, you know, I, all, my, all I'm ever doing is just like, you know, I'm playing with my machines and moving rocks around and creating things around people's houses. And uh, is there anything really important about that? Well, consider this. You, you, you create beautiful spaces for people. And I have known people. Why do you think that at a place like St. Joseph's Villa, it's so important for them to have a beautiful courtyard with flowers and stuff in it. You've got older people, you've got disabled people, you've got people who are having a rough time in life, and they go to a beautiful place, and they find consolation there, they find comfort there. And you, in your work, you're saying, well, I'm just moving stones around to make a buck. No. You don't know what's going on in that house for that pe person. They could be dealing with depression or anxiety or something and you've created this beautiful waterfall and they go and sit by this waterfall and they are consoled by that. 
If you own a business, you say, well, I should be an honest businessman. Of course, yes. But you should be honest to your customers and to your employees. Maybe you take less profit out of your, uh, out of your business so that you're able to pay your workers a little better than the going rate in the industry. Because maximizing profit is not your number one goal in your work. Your number one goal is to care about people beyond just as units of energy who, who, who contribute to my bottom line. You care about them as image bearers of God. We're going to talk more, more about this uh, going forward. Fourth, realize that ultimately all work is God working through you. And this is, this is amazing. Martin Luther was very good on this. He, he read the Bible and he's reading through the Bible and he says, you know, there are places in the Psalms where God says that he, he feeds everyone. He feeds the animals and he feeds people, etc. He feeds all living things. Or places in the Bible, in the Psalms, where God says he protects the city. He protects the city with the bars at the gate. God's taking credit for all these things. Well, how is God accomplishing it? How is he feeding you and me? He's feeding you and me through the farmer who grows the food and through the, the packing people who harvest the food and through the trucker who, who drives the food to the grocery store and to the grocery clerk who puts the food on the, on the, ta- on the, uh, the counter and, and through the cashier who takes your, your credit card after you've picked up the food. There's a whole host of people that God is using to feed you and me. These are examples of how God is working through us. The point is, is that all work is the work of God caring for his creation. So if you do your work well, you're representing your Savior. We work so God's world works. Even the pews you're sitting on. The fact that you have, these are some of the most comfortable pews I've ever been on. I've got to say, pews are usually terrible. These ones aren't bad. The only reason, the reason that you and I are enjoying these pews is because many people did the things necessary for those things to be manufactured and put in this building. All work is meaningful. All work matters. And last thing, all good work will last. What do I mean by this? Well, in Psalm 90, Moses wrote Psalm 90, and at one point in Psalm 90, he says, Establish the work of our hands, O Lord. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And it's this sense that we all have, and we're going to talk more about this next week, but this sense that we all have that, that our work and, the, and the, the things that we have produced with our work, they're ultimately not going to last. We know that, right? You're a plumber, you plumbed that house, that house stands for 100 years. Over the course of that time, your plumbing's going to need to be repaired. It's going to have to be replaced with something better, whatever. This is, this is how things go. And so our, our stuff doesn't last, and we feel the weight of that, and we feel the, the vanity of that, at least as the author to Ecclesiastes says. But here's the thing. Jesus came into this world not just to live and die for you and me, although he did come to this world to live and die for you and me so that we could be redeemed so that when we die when we run out when our clock stops ticking that we will spend eternity in the presence of God with him but Jesus came to redeem this whole earth this world this creation that God made good and you and I fouled up by our sin Jesus came into the world to pay the debt that pays for that 
terrible act of, of sabotage that we committed against his world. And so now this world we can know is going to last. And so the work that you have done, any work that you have done in the name of God for his glory, it will be established forever so that when you enter into the new creation, when you stand before God and spend the next billion years wandering this earth and experiencing the majesty of it, your work will be there. I know you don't believe it, but it's true. Isaiah chapter 60 says something absolutely astounding. Isaiah chapter 60 pictures the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And listen to verses 8 and 9 of Isaiah chapter 60. It says this, Who are these that fly along like clouds, like doves to their nests? Surely the islands uh, look to me. In the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your children from afar with their silver and gold to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Foreigners will rebuild your walls and their kings will serve you. It's a picture of Tarshish, okay? That's the city that, you remember Jonah took off to escape God? He went to Tarshish. You know why he picked Tarshish? Because that was like the edge of the world. You know, you go past Tarshish, Tarshish, earth is probably flat in their minds. I don't know for sure, but you fall off the edge. Tarshish is as far as you can get away from God. And here, the ships from Tarshish, from all the four corners of the earth, are bringing in their bounty into the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. Your bounty will be there too. Not just your gold and silver, but the products of your work done in the, in the, the name of Christ. It will last and so go to work, whether you sit in an office at home or in a building in Toronto and you crunch numbers all day, or whether you're cleaning toilets uh, for people who have big homes in Oakville, or whether you're uh, 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 an electrician and you're wiring a house or you're pulling line in a big condo tower, whatever you're doing, I can't, I can't name all your stuff, otherwise we're here all day, okay? Whatever you're doing, do it for the Lord. And even if you don't like the job, we'll talk more about what do you do when you don't like a job, but even if you don't like a job right now, that doesn't mean you can't still do it for the glory of the Lord. You can be honest and say, this really ain't my jam. But in the meantime, this is where I am and this is what he's given me and I will do it to the best of my ability for the glory of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, teach us to understand work the way you do as a good gift from which we get great pleasure and joy if we would understand it the way you uh, have designed it to be for us. Thank you that you're a worker, that you're still working, that your spirit works in us and that we get to partner with your working in this world. Give us a sense of the joy and pleasure and joy uh, um, of it. And may, may you establish the work of our hands. We thank you, Jesus, that our work can be established forever and ever because you have won victory over all that, that destroys. Rust and, uh, <laughs> rust and moth uh, can destroy these things, but Jesus, you have made it so they do not. We praise you and we love you, and, and we pray this all through your name. Amen.